Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of the problem with reading, it's hard to do that when you're totally plastered. Uh, Steven, what are you drinking right now? Wait, wait, we didn't even have our, like, I'm, I'm Revan, I'm Steven. Oh my god! We, we have wow. a system. I thought you, I thought you were for once going to oh, have no. like a decent oh, no. transition where, and that's the problem with reading. Speaking of problem with reading, I'm Brevin. I'm Steve. My we god. had a moment. How did I do that? How did I do? Okay, so this is all going right in the intro. This is you either a couple seconds ago or right now. Oh, that was so bad. I'm I'm so sorry. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, all right, all right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And a uh, moment of silence for Sam. Dun-dun. Sam's still gone. He's with us in spirit. He's with us in spirit. Sorry, the, that wasn't very silent of me. Yeah, the Samless void just screams to be filled. It's, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's too painful just to let it... You know, just sit there unacknowledged. It festers if you just let it sit there. You know, you've got to let it out. you got to let those emotions out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. healthy. Very healthy. Uh, so I'm going to assume that my previous failure is in the intro, so I'm not going to bother uh, reinitiating small talk. But uh, Steven, what are you drinking right now? Uh, a cup full of disappointment in that intro. Um... Uh, yeah, I deserve <laughs> that. Uh, I am drinking a lovely mug of uh, cold apple cider. Yeah, it's quite excellent. Falls uh, falls on the way. Although, truth be told, I never quite understood the need for having cider in the fall. To an extent, like it, it makes sense. You're harvesting apples, and that totally makes sense. And I, I remember many fond memories of actually har- harvesting apples and making apple cider with my family uh, when I was a kid. But truth be told, I like apple cider at all seasons. Mm. By apple cider, are we speaking of the alcoholic kind of apple cider or just some nice like spiced you know, giant plastic bottle from Costco variety. Giant plastic bottle from Costco variety. Though this one's Bridge Street Market, but I mean, tomato, tomato. Yeah, very nice. Very nice. Uh, what about for myself? Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, as for myself, I have uh, what should be, I think it's called a uh, blue sapphire martini or something like that, except for which which that recipe calls for a uh, blue caraco, caraco. I don't know how to pronounce this word. My brother's going to yell at me because he knows how to pronounce this word. Um, anyway, that stuff, gin and uh, peach snaps, which I just recently acquired. I didn't have the the blue stuff, so I just used triple sec instead, which I'm told is roughly comparable. Uh, and it's pretty good. It it, it kind of has like a three layered thing to it, where the triple sec comes in first, followed by the gin with a little bit of bitter, and then right underneath the bitter at the end, the uh, the peach flavor just sort of washes over you. And uh, uh, yeah, I'd say probably solid six and a half out of ten would would recommend not the best thing that i've ever had but uh a nice change of pace let's I, i'm curious here on your scaling uh is five perfectly average it's totally fine 6.5 is it's actually a little above average or is this a like no you just gave this thing an f so no no so that's a relatively good score i am pretty hard on cocktails um i don't for a lot of cocktails i don't have a lot of utility uh for them I, i'm trying to grow in this area for the most part i'm just going to take either straight up bourbon or something close to it or beer for that matter if i'm looking for more flavor or or uh, you know more varieties of flavor i'm not really huge into the fruity aspect of it like it's great that drinks can taste like that so yes that's a good score for a cocktail i, I would I say see. yeah makes sense uh but speaking of making sense uh, here we are, Master and his Emissary, Chapter 5, Part 2, Part 1 of Part 2, 
of Chapter 5 of Master and His Emissary will be handled by Steven. Yes, indeed. Right on. So uh, McGill, McGill Chris kicks it off with kind of uh, what appears to be like an, an aside, like less than a page long aside, uh, which for him, a page is practically an entire novel in and of itself, titled The Functioning of the Nervous System is Right Hemisphere Congruence. Uh, and it's a brief aside in which McGill Chris discusses how our, our very neurons act in a reverberative sort of way. Uh, that is to say, they're not unidirectional, uh, taking an impulse and transmitting it to the next neuron, but rather they are reciprocal, which, of course, he ties back to the right hemisphere's uh, mode of interacting with the world. It both receives, but it also, um, it also puts out. It, uh, uh, the, our, the way we interact with the world is both we, the world presents itself to us, but it changes based on how we observe it. Um, something, something, the mountain is different to the geographer than it is to the painter, than it is to the cave diver, than it is to, and so on and so forth. Uh, he quotes Marcel Kinsburn, uh, quote, counter to the traditional image of the brain as a unidirectional information thoroughfare, when cell stations in the brain connect, the traffic is almost always bi-directional. The traffic is not in one direction with a little feedback either. Uh, areas interact equally in both directions, directly reciprocally, or indirectly by looping across several cell stations, so that the neural traffic reverberates through its starting point. The forebrain is overwhelmingly an area of reverberating reciprocal influence, end quote. Uh, so all that to say, the very core of our being uh, is a is right brain oriented, which it strikes me as a little bit of a, a weaker thrust, but still it's a very intriguing concept that even like down to our, our nervous system, um, not just our brain, but our very nerves, are quote-unquote right brain oriented they both give and receive um and apparently there is some evidence that this goes down even to the the molecular uh level um or it's like the the cellular level that within cells there's this sort of interaction and his quote layman's reading of the literature uh suggests that the this this is possible that it goes down to even the subatomic or the atomic or subatomic level but that's it's always kind of willing to get into it and uh, I'm not sure if that's necessarily something that is uh, uh, just kind of... I, I'm not sure if that's ne necessarily something that he's going to be willing to stand by. Also, apologies for that. My computer uh, or my monitor just turned off. Uh, so he, he launches from here into uh, one of his two main sections within the first uh, part of the second half. Uh, the intermediate processing carried out by the, the right hemisphere. or Sorry, the left hemisphere. So the right hemisphere starts the process of bringing the world into being. Um, making it primal ipso facto. I mean, the you know we interact with the world primarily through our right hemisphere. But it is also primar primal in a deeper sense in that it starts the process due to the fact that it is simply more in touch with reality. It is uh, ingrained with reality, whereas the left hemisphere, we'll all recall, is much more abstract. Uh, the left hemisphere will bring this presented world taken from the right hemisphere. It will bring it into focus. It will process it and refine it but it must pass it back uh, to where it began in order for it to be synthesized with reality. Otherwise, that uh, that world will remain re-presented and abstracted. Uh, Michael Chris actually uses books as an analogy, and I really liked this analogy. Um, he notes that uh, life can have meaning without books, and here I'll beg the bibliophiles in our uh, fan base to not cancel me, but books cannot have meaning without life. Uh, life is certainly enriched with books, but note the ordering. Life is put into books, and books go back into life, but they are not the progenitors of life themselves. Uh, quote, what is in them 
not only adds to life, but genuinely goes back into life and transforms it. So that life as we live it in a world full of books is created partly by the books themselves, end quote. So books are the, the very left hemisphere. They're represented life. They're static, organized, boundaried, revisitable, etc. cetera. Uh, life itself is fleeting and unrepeatable and books are anything but. Um, and here, I actually really like this analogy in that kind of most of the time, Nigel seems to be bashing on the left hemisphere. Um, in, in, in this case, he is very firm in that the left hemisphere makes life better. It takes what the right hemisphere uh, gives it and enriches it. It processes it. And if done properly, it gives it back to the right hemisphere, uh, richer and more well-developed, much in the same way with books. I, uh, you know, if I, if I, well, in this book, for example, I mean, the, the master and his emissary sitting on its own will do nothing. But if I read it, hopefully all of the knowledge within it will in a way come to life. It will impact my life and it will make me a better person for it. It will make my life a better person for it. But as long as it's staying there, it's static. It's not changing. And even as I'm reading it, it itself is static and not changing. I'm the one that's changed. Whatever book you're talking about, it takes the experience given by life and returns it enriched, much as the left hemisphere takes the world uh, that is presented by the right hemisphere and returns it enriched. So this is a really kind of, uh, I think this is a, a strong analogy, maybe not without its flaws, but I really do like it, if for no other reason than kind of for once the, the left hemisphere gets a nod of approval. Um, so McGillicris has stated before, and he states again, that the mind is both uh, receptive and generative, which I've already gone into the whole, the mountain appears one way to one and one way to another. Um, that both, and in this section, he really dives into uh, the fact that both hemispheres are involved in this process of give and take, but not symmetrically. Uh, he reiterate, reiterates that the right hemisphere brings the world into being for us, uh, but he emphasizes uh, that what it brings into being can inevitably only be partial. He uses the ana analogy of a radio receiver. It can only be tuned to one wavelength at a time. And similarly, our brain cannot bring uh, into being everything in the universe all at one time. Uh, the left hemisphere has a similar uh, restriction, uh, but it's, it's receiving its information from a different source that is the right hemisphere. Uh, so the left hemisphere refi refines what parts of the universe are presented to it. Um, it takes a small part of what the right hemisphere has received and refines it with a negative approach. Uh, while it is a narrowing, it is not a diminution, uh, diminution, Dim diminution, how do you pronounce that word? But it is an increase, much like a sculptor refining a block of marble into a statue. Uh, so just to kind of go down the process again, the world presents itself to the right hemisphere. Uh, the right hemisphere kind of chooses what exactly to pass on to the left hemisphere, which further refines it and then passes it back uh, to the right. Um, so the world on the whole that we experience is a product of both hemispheres, but not in the same way. Again, this is an asymmetric approach. Well, let's say the world we experience is a product of both hemispheres, but not in the same way. This is a very asymmetric way. And notice how with both of these hemispheres, I discussed how um, it's a it's a very negative approach that the right uh, hemisphere can only listen into certain parts of the universe, much like a radio receiver can only listen to one wavelength. And that the left, furthermore, will refine it, will focus in on only a part of what the right hemisphere passes it. Uh, I, I want to say it was in chapter one or two that he brought this theme up and he brings it up again. Um, quote, the relationship between the hemispheres is permissive only. The right hemisphere can either fail to permit by saying no or permit by not saying no. Aspects of being that presence to it. Uh, until they do so, it does not know what they are 
and so cannot be involved in their being as such prior to their disclosure. Subsequent to this, the left hemisphere can only fail to permit by saying no, or permit by not saying no, aspects of what is presented in the right hemisphere to be re-presented. It does not know what the right hemisphere knows, and therefore cannot be involved in its coming into being as such, end quote. So all that's to say, what we know about things as they truly are is apophatic in nature. It's negative. It is us chipping away at the thi- at what we know they are not. Um, it's focusing in by excluding other things. Uh, the, the last section of this particular part is uh, called the process of reintegration. Uh, so we, we've beaten it to death at this point. The uh, fact that the right hemisphere is all about union, the left hemisphere is all about division. Uh, and he brings up that this is uh, a very Hegelian approach, that this is a thesis and an antithesis um, that is encapsulated in our very brains, uh, the right hemisphere being the thesis, the left hemisphere being the antithesis. And we need a, we need a synthesis. We need a way to, to bring these two together, to mesh them together. Um, we can be pretty sure that the left hemisphere is not going to be the one to do this synthesizing. Um, it takes the world, it denatures it, or as Heidegger would say, it unworlds it. Uh, the world becomes abstract and lifeless. Uh, but the right hemisphere can't do this alone. It needs the left hemisphere to be able to unpack what it experiences. Quote, without its distance and structure, certainly, there could be, for example, no art, only experience. Wordsworth's description of poetry as, quote, emotion recollected in tranquility, end quote, is just one ref- famous reflection of this, end quote. And another quote, similarly, the immediate pre-conceptual sense of awe can evolve into religion only with the help of the left hemisphere, though if the process stops there, all one has is theology or sociology or empty ritual, something else, end quote. So the left hemisphere is good at taking a step back and being able to uh, to, to, to refine, to process, uh, to be able to approach something from that distance it needs, but it can't stay there. The left hemisphere has divided things and a new union needs to be made, which is the specialty of you guessed it, the right hemisphere. Uh, he goes into a brief aside with uh, with Nietzsche um, and how Nietzsche holds that there are two fundamentally opposed artistic drives, uh, Apollo and Dionysus, uh, the the two god, the two Greek gods that he kind of associates with um, with these two artistic drives. Drives uh, Apollo representing rational order, clarity, control, and Dionysus uh, representing intuition, physical pleasure, and pain, disregard for boundaries, and a celebration of nature beyond human control. He notes that this more closely corresponds to the frontal cortex and the more ancient limbic systems, but there are still traces of this within the the hemispheres. I. Uh, to be completely honest, I didn't necessarily understand why he threw Nietzsche in there, but it seemed that he was working with something. So at the very least, uh, dear listener, you can have that as an interesting little tidbit. Uh, so McGilchrist uh, goes on to note that the left hemisphere knows uh, that things, or sorry, knows things that the right hemisphere does not, just as the right knows things that the left does not. But unlike the left, the right is in direct contact with the embodied lived world. Um, and so th- it just has kind of a, uh, a superior standpoint to the left. Uh, so William, he brings up William Blake in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, uh, quotes, energy is the only life and is from the body. Reason is the bound or outward circumference of energy, end quote. Uh, and here he's, uh, his, his take on reason is more rationality. Um, and he says, quote, that rationality draws its very existence from the delineation of something else in which the life actually inheres, end quote. 
Um, so all that to say, uh, the relationship between the two hemispheres is likewise very asymmetric. The uh, favor is ultimately towards that of union rather than division, that is to say, the right hemisphere over the, over the left hemisphere. Uh, quote, the need for ultimate unification of division with union is an important principle in all areas of life. It reflects the needs not just for the two oppos- opposing principles, but for their opposition ultimately to be harmonized. End quote. Um, he brings up that the Romantic tradition actually was one of the, the big philosophical movements within the Western um, uh, culture that wrestled with the synthesis of union and division, especially with their understanding of paradox. Uh, for them, paradox was welcomed. It was a sign of the limitation of our thought and our modes of language. Uh, and actually, it was a, a part of the approach to truth, not a deviation or an indicator that we have gone astray from the truth. Um we talked with our discussion on the phenomenologists uh, that uh, I forget who it was. I think it was Merleau-Ponty who uh, stated that we needed to, uh, or philosophy needed to be able to offer or to consider acceptable terms of surrender to poetry. Uh, and he quotes Schlegel uh, as saying, quote, where philosophy stops, poetry has to begin. Whatever can be done while poetry and philosophy are separated has been done and accomplished. So the time has come to unite the two, end quote. And Schlegel was apparently a big part of the romantic tradition, I believe, if I think so. Um, going back to the phenomenologist, he quotes Hegel saying, everything depends on the unity, or saying, quote, everything depends on the unity of differentiatedness and non-differentiatedness, or the identity of identity and non-identity, end quote. That's a mouthful. Uh, so pretty much him reiterating this whole, we need a synthesis, we need to be able to unite unity and, device, and division into a synthesis. Um, finally, he goes into a actually really nice aside that I, I, I thought was very helpful in kind of bringing home why all this was so important, uh, in noting that everything kind of, no matter what it is, is a, everything that can be considered a unit is in fact made of constituent parts and itself is part of the whole. We may think of human beings as, you know, units, you are a human being, but you also have, for example, a nervous system, a vascular system hands, feet, arms, legs, et cetera, et cetera. And these things can kind of keep being divided or keep being uh, reconstituted. So humans, you have families, you have societies, you have uh, worlds, you have those worlds that are connected with their own solar systems, with their own galaxies. Uh, and as small as things can go, as big as things can go, there always seems to be that next level. And perhaps there's a, theor- a theoretical limit on that, but not to our lived experience. There, there kind of never is a, a limit to how high things can go in that tree or how low things can go in that tree again a la lived experience not necessarily a la science um nietzsche was actually one of the 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 philosophers to point this out uh quote nietzsche had concluded that this vision of a mass of disconnected little things was not just another way of seeing but an artificial way imposed on the underlying connectedness of existence for the convenience of knowing quote here quoting nietzsche directly there are no lasting final units no atoms no monads here, too, the being of things has been inserted by us for practical, useful, perspectival per- reasons. End of both quotes. Uh, and he concludes with a really nice uh, kind of etymological study on uh, the word longing. Uh, so the German word, uh, or the, the English translation into the German would be uh, das Seinen. Uh, and that's from the same root as a Dyson or a tendon. Uh, so this is for longing. Uh, and so uh, Dyson is a tendon, uh, which is related to tending towards something. So our longing is actually a natural tending towards something. Uh, and the English word sinew is a cognate with Dyson. 
and sinew is the whole elastic union of muscle and tendon. The above gives the image of a joint, a thing that connects parts and allows them to move both towards each other, but also away from each other, preserving that union. And this is an excellent analogy for the forces of both individuation and coherence. Um, lastly, he concludes with uh, David Hume uh, stating that reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions, and so never can pretend to be in any office than to serve and obey them, end quote. Uh, and he notes that this is an unbridled passion as master, but rather intuitive wisdom that is served by rationality rather than uh, serving rationality. And that's uh, where that drops off. I'll leave it to you, Brevin. Indeed. Uh, so McGilchrist then takes a second just to clarify that the this return to the right hemisphere as the place of unity doesn't discount the achievements of the left hemisphere. And he points out that Thinking this is a result of being misled by a left hemispheric mechanistic view of the world, where his analogy is that uh, when the left hemisphere takes apart a watch, you know, like in theory, and then puts it back together again, there's there's nothing added to the world. Um, but what actually happens is something closer to what he uh, calls or or what he says Hegel talks about in Hegel's uh, Aufbung, which I'm just assuming that that's how it's pronounced. I don't actually know. Uh, and that's normally translated as sublation. That is uh, a part being reintegrated into the whole, but is something better translated or at least uh, translated via an extended metaphor by Hegel talking about uh, the lifting up of something into a larger whole via an organic process. And the example that Hegel gives and that he quotes is uh, akin to a plant developing from a seed to a blossom to a fruit. And he says that focusing on the whole, the continuous growth and development of the plant doesn't mean that any of the previous stages were false just because they were just because they sublated into the larger whole, but rather that to understand the plant as a full uh, creature or not creature, but as a full being of, of some kind, you have to draw each of those individual stages back into the realm of unification. And this process is a is one that preserves the in the analysis and knowledge that you gain by looking at each stage and it's additive and it brings when the left is brought back into the right's wholeness, it adds something to it. It's not purely a um a just going back to square one. It's not a return to the status quo. It's an increase. And he says that this also explains the religious idea of annihilating the self, which you, which we can see across several traditions in various ways. And this seems, you know, at first glance, like it's some kind of a bad thing, because if the point of creation is to create, you know, varied embodied selves with uniqueness and individuality, then destroying that would seem to be a bad thing or a, moving back to, to square one in some way. But he says that properly understood and, you know, extending this metaphor to the left hemisphere, reintegrating with the right hemisphere, at least in terms of understanding, it's something more like kenosis or transformation, where the self is emptied into something bigger than itself. And it's a trans it's a transformative and positive thing. And, you know, talking about things bigger than oneself, insert David Foster Wallace and his eternal quest to do just that. You might say that despite his best efforts, he was stuck in left hemispheric thinking in some way. Uh, he was almost there. He was so close. So very close. Um, uh, and, and he said that this synthesis of uh, knowledge is how things are, of knowledge and experience rather, is how things are supposed to work. Uh, but that he'll be making the argument uh, that over time, 
in our culture, at least, the left hemisphere has grown to see this reintegration, which means the primacy of unification, as a threat to its powers and to what it tries to do. And this links back to the Nietzschean story of the master and his emissary. And he also tells a, a parallel story that, that Hegel tells that's quite similar, which is just that the emissary, the, 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 the tool that's meant to ultimately return to the center and increase it, sees the return as a threat to its own authority and misidentifies the right hemisphere as a tyrant rather than a benevolent king or a benevolent reintegrator. Um, and so it tries to exist independently, but that doesn't work because the process needs to be completed for things to actually move forward. And he says that this is there's evidence of this because left hemispheric systems that are based on rationality don't make sense on their own terms. They always rely on premises that necessarily lie outside the domain of rationality. They rely on things like intuition. Here, you get things like, you know, David Hume, as previously mentioned, saying that everything's a slave to passions. You start there, and then on top of that, you build a rational system. And the rational system tries to deny that its base is something other than pure reason, but it ultimately fails. And he says that, quote, however much rationalistic systems give the illusion of completeness, and they can be very hard to escape for those who cannot see their weaknesses, they do in fact conceal within themselves the clue of thread that leads out of the maze, end quote. However, seeing that way out is difficult to do, and we haven't quite done it yet, which is the topic of chapter six, the triumph of the left hemisphere, which is the last chapter of part one, finally making it. And then after that, we finally get into the cultural analysis that we have all been so very much waiting for. We've all been yearning for it. I'm, I'm so looking forward to the, the cultural analysis part. Um, I mean, this, honestly, again, as dense as McGilchrist uh, can be, and as much as I can uh, make fun of him for cramming entire novels into a single page, uh, it really has been a fascinating study. I really like his discussion on um, what you were bringing up, Kenosis, uh, from what I understand, uh, both the Catholic and Orthodox Church and parts of the, the Protestant Church, um, see, for example, uh, Lewis's Great Divorce, uh, are very enamored with this idea of salvation and uh, the eschaton being this uh, this approach towards the divine where the more you lose yourself, the more you you find yourself in the divine. The, I believe the East generally refers to this as theosis and the West refers this to this as, I think it's divinization. Hmm. Is, that, is that the right word for it i'm not sure that that sounds vaguely correct okay um but regardless it's as you approach god as you approach the divine um you paradoxically lose yourself and you find yourself um you lose your life and you'll find it uh you you die to yourself and you find that you are becoming more yourself uh than you ever have been yeah Um, and and it's been mentioned but this discussion of paradox as a positive thing is something that a left hemispheric analysis cannot allow that's so anti its nature, which then, you know, brings into relief people like Chesterton, who absolutely embraced paradox as the core of Christian belief, both God and man, among other things. And McGilchrist is very much leaning into that, is that you need the part and the whole. And the struggle is you have to find the way to do both at the same time when it seems like our very nature, the way that we pay attention to things works against this, which is why it's so hard to get it right. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, I get the frustration. Uh, there are some times where it does it seems less paradox and more just straight up contradiction. And you, you do you do wrestle with that a lot. I mean, for example, one of the, the core Christian tenets of um, uh, the hypostatic union, that Christ was both fully fully God and fully human, 100% both. There is this kind of like, oh, wait, 
you can't be a hundred percent both. And yet it seems that all evidence within Christian theology and scripture does actually point to like, no, he was actually God. And for this whole thing to work, he needed to be human. And therefore he just kind of needed to be both. Um, and I, I, I do get the frustration that comes with that, but I do think that Chesterton at all, uh, being willing to kind of lean into the paradox really did kind of give Christianity quite a few, uh, gems to work with. Yeah. So just to take a bit of a maybe more critical view, I, I do find myself slightly suspicious, I guess. Like, I, I, I very much enjoyed McGilchrist vaguely rehabilitating Heidegger, at least from what I had previously known about him. It's like, oh, okay, I can see an, an aspect to Heidegger. Like, that's very interesting. But these last couple of chapters, I feel like have very much... And I mean... It is kind of the point. He's he's trying to transition from the hard science over on to the, like, okay, so how does this biological, neurological truth express itself in philosophy? And, and, and he talks about Hegel and that Hegel, from his reading, does a, one of the best jobs of, what is it, like, self-cognitizing or, or something? Like, introspection at its best in that he is at, he's describing a process that he's observing inside his brain that he, that... McGilchrist thinks you can also say physically happens inside brains on a physical neurological scale. And doing that without any sort of any of the the tools that uh, neurologists have. Exactly. So like that makes sense as far as it goes. But at the same time, you know, maybe it's left hemispheric objection, but it does feel like we're starting to get squishier and squishier. Mm -hmm. And I mean, maybe that's that's kind of the point is that the whole point of people like Heidegger and Hegel to some degree, or at least the phenomenologists, is that we can't work with these clear ideas of rationalistic philosophy to describe all of human experience. And as he's moving away from that, that reduces the degree to which, you know, I, the way that I've traditionally approached theology, mm-hmm. um, it's eroding my ability to, to work with it. But that's just the nature of the thing. I, I'm sympathetic. I think... I think his original idea of the first half of this book was more, uh, yes, laid the scientific framework, but also the philosophical framework. And I think on the, on the whole, it feels like a literature review uh, that he's going over all the the necessary literature to kind of make his case. And he was smart in that he started with the scientific literature because if he hadn't, at this point, I'd be I would just say, so congratulations, you've identified that there are two ways of thinking. <laughs> was this anything anyone wasn't familiar with? Uh, but but him him being able to say that this is actually a function of two two parts of the brain that are kind of at war with each other almost they're working together at their best but the, the, even the way they work with each other is inhibitory um, mm-hmm. and then launching from the scientific evidence which is pretty compelling to a history of philosophy or not 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 a history of philosophy he doesn't seem to be doing a history of philosophy but just a survey of the philosophical literature that seems to also be indicating that the people who have really thought about thought and thought about reality have come to notice these tendencies. And so he is going about this from a rather holistic perspective. And I'm hoping that because he does, he doesn't seem to be coming to any new conclusions so far, Um, or at the very least, he's always hinting at conclusions, but never actually saying anything other than this is indicative of left hand uh, of left brain, right brain. This is indicative of attention, et cetera, et cetera. Um, no, that's I'm a good hoping point. that the, the the next half is going to be okay. I've established all of this. I haven't argued for anything. I've established. 
here's where I start arguing. No, yeah, I, I can see that. That's a that's a fair rebuttal, which is just to say that, you know, given these scientific facts, what might we express from a lucid philosopher who can recognize his own self-cognition? It's like, oh, yes, here we see examples of what we should expect, given that this is how the brain actually functions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, that's that. That's fair. I think, yeah. I mean, I, I am with you in that. I, I'm sympathetic in that things do start seeming a bit more squishy. But I think that, it, again, I, I, I've, I've praised him several times for chapter two in that he sets such a firm foundation for like, no, this is how it works. Like, this is how the brain works. And so it allows him to make these admittedly pretty large leaps, but I, I don't think they're beyond the pale given the evidence presented in chapter. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, and part of the issue is just that when did we even start this book? Like February? I don't know. It's, it's been so long. I think it was pre-COVID. So was that was at least like 15 years ago. My God. Uh, yeah, so that's fair. Is that I'm pretty far removed at this point from chapter two. So the degree to which that's still like a firm foundation is at least six months away for me. Uh, no, yeah, so that's a that's a good point. Regardless, I am looking forward to chapter six as the bridge chapter that'll take us over, at which point we then have to pause and wait for the return of the much hallowed Sam uh, in order to proceed onward. But may his memory be eternal. May his memory be eternal. But speaking of things being eternal, uh, will our society? Uh, This is the question of the article for this week called Comfortably Numb in the Claremont Review of Books. Uh, It's Charles Murray. Uh, the AI scholar who is reading Ross Douthat's uh, book, which is called The Decadent Society, colon, How We Became Victims of Our Own Success. And I picked this article this week. I found it very interesting, mostly just as a way to TLDR uh, what seems to be a pretty well-written and and interesting book without actually having to read the book, uh, which, as we know, the problem with books is that they're long, which is a subset of the problem with reading in general. Hey. Yeah, yeah. Is, is that uh, uh, books, is that reading takes a long time and that it's hard. Uh, so just to run through this, the summary of the article briefly. Uh, so what is decadence? Uh, Charles Murray says that Douthat uses Barzun, who says, quote, it implies in those who live in such a time, no loss of energy or talent or moral sense. On the contrary, it, it is a very active time, full of deep concerns, but peculiarly restless for it sees no clear lines of advance. The forms of art as life seem exhausted. The stages of development have been run through. Institutions function painfully. Repetition and frustration are the intolerable result. Boredom and fatigue are the great historical forces. End quote. And Douthat looks at our own society and applies this logic. He assesses contemporary life in terms of the four horsemen of decadence, which are stagnation, sterility, sclerosis, and repetition. Uh, so the article doesn't touch much on sterility, but this is the literal meaning of the word and that we are not reproducing ourselves to death. Uh, for more on this, I would recommend Empty Planet, which is a great book that I actually wrote a review for uh, in First Things. And it made predictions two-ish years ago that are now being played out in the actual data, um, despite all of their detractors to the contrary. Um, and the the TLDR is that the overpopulation Malthusians were wrong, and what we're really going to need to look to confront is a deficit in world population, or at least a much lower number than we were expecting the global population to stabilize at. And that's going to cause a whole host of issues that we haven't even thought about. Not unsolvable, there are benefits too, but 
things that we need to, to think about. Uh, the second horseman is uh, sclerosis, which is just something like resistance to change or the stiffening up of uh, society. And, it, and in the US, maybe the best example of this is something like the administrative state, which the part of the federal bureaucracy that falls outside of the, the direct purview of Congress and instead is designed to purely administer the laws that we have on the books. Um, but that is essentially non-democratic. It's disconnected from democracy. Another example might be the resistance of Congress to actually legislate things. They're, the incentives are all arrayed against them. Um, so that's another issue. So the, the two big ones, though, or at least the two big ones in Charles Murray's perspective is one stagnation, which is economic stagnation, uh, but also technological stagnation of a certain kind. And, and he makes the argument uh, that we haven't had in the last 30 years no magnificent galvanizing achievements, things like landing men on the moon, and that we're not moving forward. Although I would take issue with this point, uh, which is that, like, yes, the big landing on the moon was a galvanizing event. It also had tertiary quality of life effects, but I don't think it had primary ones. And most advances these days are probably uh, quality of life and more targeted. Um, and Well, is the point of that quality of life or is it more that this is something to which all of our hopes and aspirations can uh, kind of lean into? No, I mean, that's a fair point is that do we need big things to uh, aspire to and things like landing on the moon or building a cathedral might speak to that um, need to aspire to big things. Speaking on behalf of decadence, maybe I would just say that quality of life uh, also matters. And that in terms of moving forward, in terms of dramatic advances, is that barring a revolution of tech, it's entirely possible, but we're at the uh, Pareto frontier of uh, where we can be, especially relative to the rest of the world. But anyway, I'm injecting too much commentary. Uh, So, and then the fourth horseman is that of repetition. And he applies it to several different categories, but the major one that that Murray looks at is that of entertainment and culture. And to basically sum up this entire section, nothing more is uh, needs to be pointed out than uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the top forty music on Spotify or whatever. That basically explains the entire concept of repetition: is that there is no real movement forward. There's no new ideas. It's the same thing over and over again, and we keep creating it and consuming it and, I don't know, slowly euthanizing ourselves via it. Um, and there's a quote, uh, quote, it now appears that Aldous Huxley was more prophetic than Burgess. Douthat argues that society is moving forward toward a comfortable numbness. Crystal meth is still with us, but drugs with the broadest appeal now are downers, such as marijuana, heroin, and opioids, more like the soma of Brave New World than mania-inducing uppers, end quote. So then this all asks the question, what happens when we face a dynamic competitor? Some examples from recent history uh, might be radical Islam, or more recently, China. Uh, and I've been saying for years that, you know, I'm in, in the long run, I think iPhones beat radical Islam, not to downplay the effects that security increases have made or that it's still a various issue. So then this gets to the next question, which then, how much staying power does a decadent society like the US, Europe, or maybe even South Korea and Japan have? How long can it hold on? Uh, The classic example of a decadent society is ancient Rome, 
which eventually collapsed. Um, and uh, the article includes a quote from W.H. Auden, which says, uh, quote, what fascinates and terrifies us about the Roman Empire is not that it finally went smash, but that it managed to last for four centuries without creativity, warmth or hope, end quote. So what could ha- and could that same thing happen to us? And the final quote, and perhaps the best one of the article is, quote, the only thing more frightening than the possibility of annihilation is the possibility that our society could coast on forever as it is like rome without an attila to sack its palaces or a nineveh without yahweh to pass judgment on its crimes end quote and uh i i think that's a relevant question i in terms of signs of decadence most of them seem pretty spot on my objection to technology and quality of life stuff really only doubles down on the um the fact that we live in a decadent society at present that that doesn't have significant landmark achievements, you know, we can quibble about whether that's necessary. And in terms of security concerns, I mean, you know, uh, Samuel P. Huntington was writing at the turn of the century about clash of civilizations and how there was going to be a massive civilizational war in between the West and, and Islam. And that hasn't panned out. That hasn't happened. Uh, it, it, it's gone away. And now, arguably, we're in search of a new meta narrative, and we're searching for it aiming at the East now with China and, and its rise. And, you know, I'm an international affairs person, so, so there's a lot of truth there. But at the same time, if you're making the critique of a decadent society on the decline, trying to find something to define itself with and, and failing, uh, you know, the cards are there. Yeah, I mean, what a what a mic drop to, to end things on. Um... I, I yeah this this article resonated with me quite a bit the the society that kind of has everything other than meaning it really is kind of a, a terrifying position to be in um and he I, I like how he he categorizes the the kind of negative sides of decadence the stagnation sterility sclerosis and repetition uh I, I hadn't thought of repetition as one and I but I, I I it's a strange thing because yes so many brilliant movies came out pre what was it that he kind of identified as like these this was the time of good movies what was it pre 80s pre 90s yeah i mean he he went early but then he also brought up sort of like the early 2000s and 2010s as tv shows and, and sorry if i'm stealing your point here but this is just the this is yeah, the only fine. part that i actually remembered was that that the 2000s and, and 2010s the early ones were really good at creating tv shows that were fascinating because they showed a mirror to our decadence um hmm. but that before that, which I think is what you're talking about, yeah. and I don't remember. I do have did something else. Oh, I I do have comments on that, but um, I one pushback I do have on uh his critique of the modern cinema is as brilliant as those previous movies were. I think you could objectively say that each individual one was uh brilliant, or was or maybe not each individual one, but the highs were high, as it were. I think there is something to be said for the current and i can't believe the, the words are I'm, they're coming out of my mouth but the current cinematic meta of creating universes uh and having fully fleshed out mythoses within those universes so as much as i have gotten so very much over the marvel universe i have to respect their project in that they want to create a full mythos that uh, is more well fleshed out than any one movie, even as brilliant as Casablanca or uh, I'm trying to think of another classic, All About Eve or uh, these other brilliant movies. They just can't be as well fleshed out because they don't have that time. Uh, that said, I even it, I, I I think that's the only apologetic I could offer for the modern cinematic meta is that 
uh, there is something to be said for well fleshed out universes. But man, that really did land home that the quality has just dropped. There's nothing new. All all of our movies are remakes or the story. I mean, the biggest critique of Marvel I've heard is like, yeah, it's the same story over and over and over again, just tweaked slightly differently. Um, and, you know, it, it becomes more and more about the cool fight scenes rather than the compelling story told. But uh, that's I think that's besides the point. Um, I think the author was correct in calling that out. Um, the I, I, I'm actually a little surprised by how he praised uh, shows of the uh, early 2000s, such as The Wire, House of Cards, um, and Breaking Bad, or that was uh, what, early 2000s, 2010s. Um, because while they were brilliant shows, I mean, Breaking Bad is one of the, the better shows I've seen. Um, their their quality was certainly there. They were very well shot. They were very well acted, well directed, etc. But the story as a mirror versus the story as a goal or as a, a lighthouse, as it were, uh, something to strive towards rather than something that's purely reflective. Um, so David Foster Wallace has this great uh, article or this great interview, which I think I may have brought up previously, uh, in which he says that, like reality can be as stupid and painful and horrific as it can be. And literature should not just be saying, yeah, reality sucks, doesn't it? But it should be trying to find the parts, whatever small parts of reality are still are still bright. And it should be performing CPR on those parts. It should be like breathing life back into them and like not while not ignoring the pain, while not ignoring uh, the horrors of reality, it should still be revitalizing reality and it doesn't seem that at the very I, I haven't seen all of house cards but definitely doesn't seem that house of cards is like that definitely does not seem that breaking bad is like that it seems more oh wow what a poignant critique on how horrifying everything is um and so i am a little surprised to see that he praised that uh particular um art uh artistic movement not to take the wind out of your sails but i'm glancing at it again um and his point seems to be something closer to that the last 20 years, the exception to repetition seems to be television. However, the best of television still isn't making anything particularly good. The best of it is the mirror. So the best that it can do is a mirror. And that's a critique of television. Less oh, I see. Okay. Well, I guess I can kind of pat myself on the back in that. I came to that conclusion all on my own, but then I totally misread him. So uh, I guess <laughs> no. it's kind of a wash. I mean, but you know what that is? The problem with reading. Hey! hey! I, I think we've done that the most times in this podcast. We really I have. I sincerely apologize to our listener. That yeah, we, it's it's getting very repetitious, which, you know, this guy oh, is no. My God, Stephen, we're decadent. Oh, my gosh, we're so decadent. <sighs> well, one privilege of being decadent is being able to talk about the good old days and how everything used to be better in the past. And when you do that, one might say that you are ranting. Uh, Steven, do you have a rant for us? I do have a rant. Uh, it is a petty rant, but it is a rant nonetheless. So I went to uh, the Secretary of State's office the uh, this last week. I, I've just moved to Michigan, as some of you know, and I needed to get my uh, driver's license changed and change my state of residency and all that fun stuff. So I booked an appointment online. I uh, collected all the documents that I needed to to prove that I was a Michigan resident and that I was who I said I said I was all that jazz. I uh, drove to the Secretary of State office and uh, I should note that surprisingly enough, uh, like appointments were actually pretty hard to come by. Uh, so I was I was thankful enough to got one. I actually you know took off class early, drove over there, got got there a little early, went to the uh, the office, and there was this uh, this lady in front that, uh, that was had a had a clipboard 
and was uh you know like asking everyone who come, uh, who came in their names and all that stuff and so I, I went up to her and she asked me my name i said i'm steven do you have an appointment yes it's at 11 30 it's 11 30 so it's actually a little early so can you let me in she's like okay go on in so i went in i uh i got the paperwork i filled out a few forms and went to one of the clerks and uh the clerk very friendly guy no beef with him at all i I uh, had filled out a lot of stuff and then said, okay, I need uh, your social security card. And to my horror, I realized, crap, I've forgotten my social security card. Um, and he's like, uh, do you have anything that has your social security number and your name to it? It can be a W2. It can even be online. It can be virtual if you have it on your phone. And I, I just, I'm, I'm panicking. I'm looking through all my stuff. I, I've got nothing. And so he very apologetically says, okay, well, I can't do anything for you. You'll have to book another appointment. I'm really sorry about this, but yeah, just come by. You have everything. All you need is that form. I was like, okay, fine, whatever. So I, I exit uh, building and then I get in my car and I realized, oh my gosh, I actually have my W-2 uh, on my phone because I emailed it to my dad uh, who helped me with my taxes. I pull it up. Indeed, it has my social security nut card, grab all my paperwork, run back into the, the building to be confronted with previous said lady who looks at me with a dour expression and asks if I have an appointment. To which I say, well, I was here five minutes ago, and yes, I had an appointment. Uh, I just forgot some paperwork, and I needed to come back in. And she gives me the most bureaucratic look and says, well, I can't let you back in technically. That's just not allowed. It's not in our rules. And To which I say, well, wait, look, I was just talking with one of your guys. He said I, 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 I needed to bring back in a paperwork. I just forgot that I had this paperwork. Uh and she looks back in, and of course the guy's gone. And she just says, "Guy's not there." I'm like, yes, that's true. Can you please let me in? I have an appointment. It's like three minutes ago. Please just let me in. And she finally, in the most patronizing, bureaucratic way possible, says, "Well, we're technically not supposed to do this, but I suppose I can let you in." And I, I gave oh, her the boy. most fake thank you I could possibly muster. And uh, or the most genuine thank you I could possibly muster. It took a lot of faking. I uh, walked in and got everything organized, got got my stuff filled out, got my picture taken, got my temporary license, all that. So thankfully, it ended well. But just sweet mercy, this th- this lady that was just clearly enjoying the petty power she had to make my life a, a little bit more miserable, who added nothing to the world other in this particular instance who knows maybe she's a nice lady elsewhere but in this particular instance added nothing to the world but frustration and a increasing irritation with the bureaucratic apparatus that is the secretary of state my god no that's that's such a good example of like the the i don't know like the administrative state okay this doesn't precisely map on but like the idea that instead of uh laws are clear and everyone knows what they are and then when you break one you're punished and everyone knows why you're punished mm-hmm. there's, there's the alternative model which is the soviet model and increasingly uh something more like uh, the model under the administrative state which is that everyone is a criminal and they just choose when to prosecute you mm-hmm. whether or not like, like everyone's broken laws it's just up to their deference whether or not they choose to go after you at, at any given point um that's which really is a horrifying model Yes, yes, it is. Jeez. Also, Secretary of State, do you not have DMVs out there? I, uh, I'm not sure actually. I need to get my license plate changes uh, changed. I, I forgot about that, so I was thinking of looking for a DMV. I'm guessing we have one. Ha! Huh, that's weird because uh, we because when my wife and I moved out to Virginia, we just did all this in one thing at the DMV. No, uh, I really should have done that. It might have been somehow more pleasant. Yeah, but 
Ye gods. Someone know, right? uh, read McIntyre and was like, you know what? I want to be a bureaucrat. I'm going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to do that character precisely. <laughs> she read chapter seven and was like, you know what? He may critique sociology a lot, but oh boy, can I get can I get in on this? Uh, well, speaking of getting in on this, uh, PhDs in divinity with no concept of God or ho- or what is holy and sacred in this world. Uh, are the subject of my rant, uh, which is an article from the New York Times titled, God is dead, so is the office. These people want to save both. And uh, here's, a, here's a quote from it at the beginning. In the, in the beginning, there was COVID-19, and the tribe of white collars rent their garments, for their work days were a formless void, and all their rituals were gone. New routines came to replace the old, but the routines were scattered, and there was chaos about how to best exit a Zoom, onboard an intern, and end a work week. The adrift may yet find purpose, for a new corporate clergy has arisen to formalize the remote work life. They go by different names, ritual consultants, sacred designers, soul-centered advertisers. They have degrees from divinity schools. Their business is borrowing from religious tradition to bring spiritual richness to corporate America, end quote. And the whole article is just more of this, and it is absolutely horrifying. The language and the new terms that are brought up in it just blatantly announced that this is like a direct tool of Satan and it's it's entirely demonic. Like the companies that, that do this work, the Sacred Design Lab, Ritual Design Lab, Ritualist, and another quote, the question we ask is, how do you translate the ancient traditions that have given people access to meaning-making practices, but in a context that is not centered around the congregation, end quote. In other words, how do we take things that mean things to people and turn them into cogs to be used in a corporate machine? How can we make people work harder and feel like what they're doing is the equivalent to, I don't know, interacting with the divine contingency that holds up the entire universe? But actually, they're just submitting their, I don't know, uh, expense their, reports. Their expense reports. Thank you. I don't like, I, yeah. It's like, how about we just. Ah. It, 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 it makes me so furious. Like, how do we just turn work into religion now? And I first heard about this article actually on a socialist podcast. So they had all sorts of takes that were quite funny. Um, uh, one of one observation being that like these people seem to be under the misapprehension or at least the willful denial that like most people like don't like to work. Like work can be enjoyable, but it's also something that we have to do. And we all recognize it as a necessary thing, but it's not like, our entire lives, nor do we want to make it our entire lives. And the entire article are these people just dream casting that like, oh, I I wonder how we'll deal with the fact that people are obligated to do these rituals that we do with them if we introduce them into the corporate sphere. How do we deal with the fact that people might have their other traditions or that they're devoted in other ways? And it's like, these are not problems. These are only problems because you guys are demented and you want to control these people's spiritual lives in uh, some sort of desiccated post-apocalyptic metaphysical wasteland to bring up a term that we are aware of and anyway and at the end as as expected it it mentions how an episcopal bishop hosted a retreat with many of these quote-unquote spiritual entrepreneurs uh and how he's just happy to see the religious impulse at play uh seemingly neglecting the fact that if he were taking his religion seriously he would recognize that this is an abomination and a desecration of the religious impulse and everything that he should hold dear yeah i i you sent me the article earlier and i read it and had a very similar reaction just 
it, it gets more and more horrifying, more and more just, it, it, it's a weird combination of like horror and absurd. It's like yes. first, are people actually taking this seriously? Like, do we really want to, we really want to like ritualize submitting expense reports or ritualize starting and ending meetings? Like what? Why? How? And to me, I, I understand the idea of like having some sort of standard greeting and exit or whatever. That's also just called polite manners. You don't need re- like you don't need to bring a sacred. I uh, uh, you don't need to attempt to sacredize it. And it seems that at this point, like the the thing that should be bringing everyone up, the thing that should be uh, sublimating everyone, or uh, everyone should be sublating too, or whatever the 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 phrasing is instead we're just dragging it down yep we are taking one of the most beautiful things of humanity one of the most like the the heights of everything we've ever wanted the the epitome of all the ideals that we have ever thought were worth striving for and we are dragging it into the corporate world and yeah what you said just desecrating it just making it one of the most absurd uh, i don't know just insipid things uh yeah i i I mean and to tie this to mcgilchrist very briefly honestly like with talking about these divinity school phds who just obviously have no religion and hold nothing sacred in their own lives taking this clinical approach to traditions and meaning making activities and then trying to cross apply them like oh yeah so how can we do mental tricks on people to make them I don't right. it's a, it becomes a tool it becomes a thing to grasp it's so instrumentalized it's ah it's it, it's disgusting in so many ways yeah there's one of the quotes i think you you uh, mentioned it the exact quote is uh another challenge is that many workers are already devout on their own terms on their own time and are not at all hungry for soul-based activities between nine and five end quote so said different workers who know religion see this as a pale mockery and cynical sellout that it is and want to know part of it oh man and that's such a problem you know like how however will we deal with people who care about things on their own time i know right they should only care about things while they're on the clock uh but speaking of being on the clock i got places to go no one to see, see because oh right COVID, but places to go mentally spiritually um not from uh, and not when you're off work not no yeah no not when i'm off work only when i'm at work am i spiritually connected the um, truly sacred is at work mm-hmm, mm-hmm. absolutely listen if i am not like you know pumping the hand sanitizer in the break room or you know updating that excel file like you know i just don't feel like i'm connected to the divine you know mm, indeed forever amen forever all, amen all hail our our priests uh bezos and uh zuckerberg amen uh all right. Uh, so for everyone here at the Problem with Reading podcast, uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And uh, get out there and worship a corporation or something. I mean, some of the rituals I grew up with in Protestantism really have emotional utility, to quote that uh, that article. Uh, that was fun. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. I feel like I was mealy mouthed some of it. I yeah, no, I, I was I I, I kept uh, over salivating, which was uh, annoying. <laughs>